welcome, my lords, to the White City, where you will learn more about Middle-earth and discover differences and similarities between the Rings of Power show and Tolkien's books, and whether Amazon's show, episode by episode, is worth watching. I'm Philip Dutt, your host, and I'll be joined by Matt Vandervoort. I hope you enjoy. Okay, welcome back to the White City Podcast. Welcome back. With Matt and Phil. <laughs> and so we just watched the episode three of The Rings of Power. And I guess anything stick out at you? I thought it was fun. I liked Numenor. Numenor is always exciting. Uh, I think this is the first time I've ever seen it like explored in a story beyond just sort of the text of the Silmarillion where it basically just sort of goes over it in a historical manner rather than like a narrative so it's fun I got you it's fun to uh it's fun to see it in person mm-hmm that's true because I, I was thinking that as we were watching the episode about how it's something that hasn't been you know put in production before and cinema basically yeah that's kind of cool just to see that kind of stuff and then like trying like i was trying to compare it also with basically with like gondor kind of and yeah uh, just like in especially like when they were elendil Sildor, and i can't remember the, the, the daughter's daughter. name yeah the it's daughter like, like in darien or something like that yeah i think that the daughter's an original character okay to the show i think i i can double check it okay i'm pretty sure that like I'm pretty sure she's original to the show, but there's something in the back of my mind saying like, "Oh, this character was like briefly mentioned like once somewhere." So, she could be she could be derived from the story, but I think she's original to the show. Um she seems fun so far. Yeah. Yeah. And it was it was interesting to see just in a way how different Numenor is than I was kind of anticipating. And you were telling, yeah. like, whenever we saw the, like, the royal oh. uh, throne area. Oh, the palace. Yeah, the palace. Yeah. The palace, the city, it definitely gave me some sort of Babylonian vibes, which I think works. I think it works because Gondor gives off very much sort of classical Rome meets late medieval fantasy aesthetics. More on the late medieval, but with some kind of uh, kind of like paying homage to an earlier time sort of aesthetic to it, I guess. Okay. And so I think it works well to do Numenor because Numenor is supposed to be this like ancient civilization of men that eventually gives rise to Gondor and Arnor, but mostly Gondor. And so. I think it kept a lot of the fantasy medieval aspects to it, but a little bit leaning more on like Babylonian. And I think I commented that the palace itself up at the top looked very similar to the Hagia Sophia. Yeah. So very, it feels like it comes from the same world, but from an earlier time and from a slightly more exotic time, I guess, which I think works pretty well for what they're doing with Numenor because it's kind of fun just to see a little bit less of the oh it's just 
Rome is the old culture <laughs> that a lot of fantasy can tend to fall into. So it's fun to see takes on different periods of history that are all sort of considered to be, you know, the ancient great civilizations. But yeah, definitely got some Babylonian vibes from it, which I think it's neat. Also, if I can go on a little tangent, because Numenor is clearly based off of Atlantis. Um, Yeah, makes sense. And I want to say, at one point at least, Tolkien was writing the Legendarium stories to be like set in our world, just way, way, way ancient, way before recorded history sort of thing. And so it's like Numenor, it's not that, oh, Numenor is his version of Atlantis. Like, I think that in his original idea of it, Numenor straight up was Atlantis. And the stories of Atlantis were inspired by Numenor in his mythos. I could be completely wrong on that. So yeah, don't take it with a grain of salt. But, uh, and if you go into the stories of Atlantis, everyone, like when we picture Atlantis, we picture Greek, but they were written as if they were ancient to the Greeks. And there's not really like, it's a whole, it's supposed to be a whole other civilization that doesn't actually have any basis in Greek culture in the original stories that I think it was Plato wrote about. And so it's cool to see the Atlantis stand in, not just be, Oh look, it's Greece, but magic. Yeah. So anyways, that's my tangent over about why I like that. It's Babylonian. gotcha. I see. Yeah. Um, cause it definitely looks different from Gondor. Again, it looks like there's similarities. There's definitely similarities to the way Gondor is characterized in the movies and in the books. But it's kind of like if Gondor is everything done up in marble and white stone, Numenor is everything done up in like sea sand stone and a little bit more, a little bit more primitive sort of, while not really being primitive. I don't Yeah, I like it. I like the way Numenor looks. I'm a fan so far. Yeah, I know it's... It's cool. I hope that they don't just like send them off in the next episode. You know, I hope I kind of yeah. would like to see like another episode. Well, at Numenor, I'm curious because I I okay. So my prediction for what they're gonna do with Numenor is next episode they'll get Galadriel back to Middle Earth, or next couple episodes they'll get Galadriel back to Middle Earth, but then Elendil and Isildur and whoever else is with them, maybe it's just Elendil at this point, come back. Because I believe in the original story, Elendil, it wasn't like Elendil just had gone to Middle-earth that first time. And I believe that in the original story, as it's written, the Numenorians had been, like, they have colonies in Middle-earth, and they'd been traveling to and from Middle-earth for a while. And so... I think what we'll see is Elendil sails back to Middle-earth with Galadriel and comes back to find Farazan, who in the books is our Farazan because he becomes king. He's taken over because the story in the Silmarillion, spoilers, is that our Farazan leads this big attack or he he leads some mission to Middle-earth. And when they get there, they find Sauron. And I can't remember if Sauron's in disguise or if Sauron just straight up tells them that he's Sauron. And they bring him back to Numenor. And then he basically corrupts Numenor 
under Arpharazon, and that's when Elendil and his sons leave, and that's when Arpharazon sails towards the west to try to basically storm Valinor, and then that's when Numenor falls. And so I bet what'll happen is Elendil and maybe even maybe Farazon goes with them. Go over to Middle Earth, drop off Galadriel. That's when they pick up Sauron because they introduced probably Sauron at the end yeah. of the episode. So I think that that's what they're going to do. They're going to send them over, drop off Galadriel, pick up Sauron. Everyone will be like, oh, yay, it's over. We won. And then they didn't win. And through the rest of the season, because I think this season's going to end with the fall of Numenor, I think. That's my hunch. Yeah, that would make sense. Kind of a good drastic yeah. ending, maybe. I don't know. I don't know how many. Do you? Know, do we know how many seasons they're planning? Are they? Do they I have, heard eight. Eight um, seasons, and then episode? I, eight okay. episodes. There was a guy who said something online about there being over fifty hours of, you know, content or something. Okay. Which I don't like. They're not going to fit fifty hours. Yeah. In one season. So, but, yeah, I don't know how many seasons they're going to do, but. If they are planning on doing multiple seasons, which I'm sure they are, the fall of Numenor would be a great way to end season one. It's kind of a big spectacle. It can be this cool, like, oh, man, look at this big moment and what's going to happen next season. And the next season can focus a lot on the establishment of Gondor and Arnor, which I kind of hope we focus more on Arnor. I doubt they will. But Arnor is the more mysterious of the two. Um, and that's the one that like collapses into multiple other kingdoms. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another kind of um, just to kind of piggyback off of some of that about Numenor is so like I don't really have a good understanding of how like there's like the line of the Numenorians, right? They go, yeah. they kind of make Gondor, but then it kind of seems like besides like Aragorn and Lord of the Rings, along with the Dunedain. Like it kind of ends there with all the with the Numenorean like longer life. Yeah. So I kind of like so like what what exactly was the was the point where it's like oh these these men are no longer like okay. Numenorean. So it sort of over time it's decreasing. So like Elros, um, Elrond's brother, he is the king of Numenor because he chooses because because of some intermarrying of humans and elves. Right. He they can pick do they yeah. want to be elf or do they want to be human. Right. And Elros chooses human. His father wanted to choose human but loved his mother too much so chooses elf. And he's Elrond's brother, right? Yeah, Elrond yeah. and Elros are twins. Um Elros chooses to be a man and he is made the king of Numenor and the king of the Adan who are like right, the high men basically. Yeah. And he lives for like 400 years or something. And then over time, it's like when they cut off contact with the elves, it slowly starts to decrease. And then by the time that they get to Gondor and Gondor's, the kings of Gondor are really long lived. And then by the time Aragorn is here, Aragorn lives for like 160 years or something and so it's not like after Aragorn that's it no more long right. lives it's just like in the story they're slowly each generation each successive generation 
is living shorter and shorter. And even Aragorn is a special case because he is of the line of the kings. So, like, in the appendices of the Lord of the Rings, Aragorn had fought for, like, Theoden's father or grandfather under an assumed name, and then he'd gone down to Gondor and, like, led attacks against Umbar. So, like, Denethor had met Aragorn, but Aragorn was using an assumed name, and I I think... Again, it's been a while since I've read the books, but I want to say that it's kind of implied that Denethor knows who this guy is, and that's part of the reason why he's resentful. Like, because Aragorn and Denethor don't ever meet in the books, I don't think. Hmm. Um, so kind of like the movies then. Yeah, they never meet in the books because Aragorn, the only time, he doesn't enter the city until the end, except once to go in and do medicine on Eowyn. Um, so I think it's like kind of implied that Denethor, because he's very crafty and clever, sort of figures out who Aragorn is when he's there the right. first time and he doesn't like him because he's just like if this guy comes back I don't get to be in charge right um, yeah so and that's that's the way it was in the books even because I think I know so. people said that like some of and this is kind of a tangent with this but like Denethor is kind of not as um like disgruntled about everything in the books and he's a yeah. little more He's a little more, like, just easy, in a way, easy going with it all. He's but. a little bit more in the books. In the books, because I think in the books and in the movies, but it really is played up more in the books. The whole reason he's, uh, at the very end, he goes completely insane. The whole reason he does that is because he is uh, looking into the Palantir and Sauron's just messing with his head. Okay. But he's always sort of this... He, he's never, like, a nice guy. Like, clearly... He's not a great father. Um, <laughs> he is shows favoritism to Boromir, and then when he finally does realize that he loves Faramir, he tries to burn him alive. So <laughs> he's not a great dad, and he's all yeah. So he's always like got this edge to him, um, and he doesn't want to recognize Aragorn as king. I a lot of it is because if Aragorn is king, then the stewards lose all their power. Denethor loses his power, basically. Yeah, so Denethor is about the same age as Aragorn, but he looks, like, ancient um, compared mm -hmm. to Aragorn, because Aragorn is, you know, has the stronger line from Numenor. Yeah, so that's how that all works. It's just, like, over time, each generation, as they um, intermarry with the lesser, lesser yeah. um, men, the non-Adon men, they, uh, their bloodline thins out. So, speaking of the non-Adon men, at the end there, the reveal that this sailor guy is some king, or supposed to be some king, of what is essentially Mordor before it goes all mm -hmm. evil. Um, my first thought was, oh, they're gonna set up the ancestors of the Rohirrim, but I don't think I don't, I don't yeah. think they're gonna do that because no. the men of Rohan. There's this whole story about them coming from the north. They're implied like hobbits are implied to be just a subspecies of men. 
like the language the hobbits speak is related to the language that's spoken in Rohan and all these different things and that's because the hobbits were up in the north and the Rohirrim or the proto Rohirrim were up in the north so yeah I don't think they're going to do Rohan it'd be really cool if they do some kind of proto Rohan thing but yeah uh it might be too early for that so I'm curious to see what they do with this because I do like the idea of exploring what Mordor was like before it was all terrible. It also, depending on where they are in the Southlands slash Mordor, if they do show it kind of becoming this evil thing, which they are with the elves, um, the elven slaves, mm-hmm. they still, like, not all of Mordor in the books is fiery, volcano-y, everything, terrible land. Like, um, there's large portions of it that are basically just farmland because if you think about it, like, even if you're a Dark Lord ruling over orcs, you gotta feed them somehow. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you can't just feed them on fire and ash and lava and general bad vibes. It's kind of what kind of comes out in... The Shadow of War, Shadow of Mordor, a little bit. Okay. Those games, they have more green yeah, yeah, yeah. over everything, I and uh, so it kind of makes for more of a like kind of sensible like this is how things actually look in a yeah. way. Yeah. Um, yeah, but I guess some something else I was like thinking about um, is kind of two interesting scenes. Um, one was where the Harfoots were talking about those people they had left behind yeah and something about hey like we'll we'll see you again or yeah like we'll we'll meet you again something like that and another one was when Galadriel's talking to Hullbrand I believe it is yeah and says something about like like you know this isn't just chance this is like from someone like greater yeah yeah than us so I thought that was two interesting almost differing kind of views on things from like the Harfoots it being a little more what might you say like a um, new age and then maybe I don't know I think because the interesting interesting thing is that we know well we know what happens to elves when they die we don't actually explicitly know what happens to men when they die, and I'm going to lump hobbits in with them just because, again, they're implied to basically just be a sub-race of men. Because in the Silmarillion, like, death is given to men as the gift of Iluvatar, and men's souls go somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um... And so there is like there is the sense that when somebody's dead, you will see them again, and it it's kind of implied that they're in the same place as the souls of elves, but in like a different part of it. It's the halls of Mandos. Um, okay, yeah. In the Undying Lands, he's one of the. Uh, um, he's one of the Valar. Valar, yeah, yeah. he's okay. one of the Valar. So, yeah, I don't know if. It could be that. It could just be, like, again, I don't know if they can use those, but if they are sticking to the lore, which it seems like they're... Tr- 
it's I do feel like they're trying to do their best to stick to the lore. Um, then, yeah, then I that fits to me at least. That fits with the sort of the souls of the dead go to the same place, right? Kind of is it kind of also made me think of how like Rohan at the hall after like in the early part of the Return of the King movie, yeah. how they're like, long live... I don't know if they say long live the dead, or... Maybe. They say something. I think that scene's in the books. Yeah. Because, like, I'm, I'm pretty... Hail sh- the victorious dead. Yeah, That's what it was. Yeah, yeah, Hail yeah, yeah. the victorious dead. Um, which does seem like a very... Because the, Ro, the Rohirrim, they're basically, you know, Anglo-Saxon Vikings on horses sort right. of aesthetic to them. So that... I think that it fits with the, the culture they're going for. And I think that honestly, the way that the the like the speaking the names of the dead that the Harfoots do, I didn't get as much of a new agey thing out of it as I got a sort of like tribalistic sort of proto maybe tribe yeah, I guess tribalistic would be the best um way of looking at it, which I think is what they're kinda going for, because like this right. is this these are the these are they're halfling or they're they're hobbits, but they're not hobbits yet. They're they're not hobbits really till they've like settled down. And so this is the early hobbits, the ones that are nomads. And so I I think that it just kind of fits with the mm-hmm. the way they're characterizing them. And then when you go over to the um the sort of the fates like Galadriel talking about like it was fate that brought us together sort of thing. Um I mean the entire world works basically on predestination because at the beginning of the Silmarillion, you see the creation of the world and they're singing this song and the whole song, like the song, the music of the um, Einar, I think that's what it's called. The music of the Einar is the world. So they all create it and then sort of the blueprints for the whole world. And then, but they don't know what it is yet. And then the ones that become the Valar and the Maiar, go into it and help flesh it out. So the idea of like destiny and fate and all those sorts of things is definitely something that fits with Tolkien's vision for the world. Yeah. And I think that also fits with Tolkien's vision of how he would have seen the world, the real world working as well. Like I think, uh, he would have definitely seen Providence as something that exists. And so mm-hmm. um, I don't think that that's inconsistent with his worldview or his interpretation of anything at all. Yeah. Something I was I thought was interesting um, when we were watching the appearance of the Queen and like, and you had, you had remarked that you thought that that was actually like it's accurate portrayal yeah. of that time period from yeah. the like, Silmarillion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Late, like the end of the Silmarillion. And yeah, so, so far, again, it's been a while since I've read those parts of the Silmarillion, but I do think that that is, that matches up with what Tolkien wrote it as, because there was something about, <sighs> I think I think they're taking it in a slightly different way, but there's something in the Silmarillion about there being a queen after so like there's the king actually they could they still could do it the way it's working there's the king 
who is the one that sort of tries to be a reformer to go back to the old ways and supporting the elves and all those sorts of things. And then when he dies, his daughter is the heir, but Arpharazon marries her to basically take over the kingdom. So, it, yeah, it it matches up. It looks like, because they have the king still being alive and they call her the queen regent. So it matches up with all of that. Um, and do you think Arpharazon is that guy kind of like sitting on the side with the yeah, robe? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, they, they mention like Minister Farazon or something okay. like that. So he definitely, um, yeah, so like he's in it already. He's there. Um, and he is sort of portrayed as like the worst king, but also like the last greatest king of Numenor. There's all this weird, not weird. It's it's all this like conflicting stories about him where like in some stories, it's just like he's the guy that caused the downfall of Numenor. But in other ones, it's like he also led Numenor to the height of its power and all that sort of stuff, which that's the thing is that they fall because they get arrogant but it's because they they grow more powerful and sort of lust for power and lust for the main thing is they start to fear death because in in the legendarium death is given to men not as a curse but as a gift hmm. and nobody knows why that's interesting nobody's really sure because the elves are immortal um but to men it's given that they uh, they have short lives, but they can basically choose their own fate, um, which is why I always I tend to like men in like if I had to pick a favorite race in the Lord of the Rings, it's I like the men just because they're the ones that can choose their own fate and actually have agency in the world because they're not tied to the music of Iluvatar, the music of the Einar in the same way that the elves are. So, like, the elves are, like, an inherent part of the world itself, and their fates are tied to the world. Whereas with men, men have the ability to change their fate, basically, is their their whole deal. Mm. But because they can change their fate, they're only given, like, 80 years <laughs> to do stuff. Uh, yeah, so, but then when you get people that, once you start to stray from, you know, having good relations with the elves and venerating the Valar and all those sorts of things. That's when the men of Numenor start to see death as a curse and they start to, uh, rather than being like thankful that they have the, the lands closest to the undying lands of any mortal, they start to chafe and be like, well, you put us just out. Like it's just out of our reach. And then that's why they end up, at Sauron's sort of prodding. That's mm-hmm. why they end up sailing over and getting completely wrecked because of course you're not going to be able to storm the lands of the gods <laughs> or angels or yeah. whatever they are. What about an idea of how the characters like react to pain and handle that? And do you have any like, thoughts or ideas? I mean, it kind of depends. Like you see the, I think the biggest sort of reaction to pain situation right now in this episode was the uh, maybe not so much pain, but like adversity um, in a more broader sense is you have the, the elves that have been captured by the orcs and you have the one Harfoot family that 
is almost left to to die. Right. Um, and in both cases, well, in the case of the, they sort of take opposite trajectories. So with the elves, it's like we're in this pretty bad place, but then you start to get the more like, oh, we're we're gonna escape, and then they almost escape, and then they realize how hopeless their particular situation is, mm-hmm. and it goes, and it becomes a more a darker sort of. Um, it goes back moment. to where it was. Yeah. With the Harfoots, it's not as serious of a situation. Well, I mean, I guess it is, but it doesn't seem as serious in the show. Where they have a good situation, and then it starts to get bad right at the end where they the dad can't carry on, and they're getting left behind. But then they realize that, oh, well, we have to adapt to this situation and we're going to help this person even though we don't know who they are and we're going to sort of break custom to do the right thing, sort of. And it ends on a very hopeful note. And so I think it's sort of, it's too early in the series to kind of see how, like, what the show's message about dealing with adversity is just because it's episode three. And so there's you're still kind of in the setting up the adversity stage of the story. Yeah. Um, But I think, yeah, I don't know. Because obviously the elves are a very rigid sort of regimented people. And so they kind of see their opportunity and take it. And you get the really cool fight scene and they're doing all their kick flips. Um, yes. The, <laughs> kick, uh... flips, kick flips solve everything. <laughs> oh my, what's his name now? Short hair elf, yeah, boy. Arian or somebody. And, I can't yeah. remember exactly what his name is now. Oh, oh I we lost need to it. Write it. We need to get a cheat sheet of all the yeah. characters' names. <laughs> it's probably a good idea. And like he was just doing like the classic Legolas stuff. Yeah, yeah, and yeah Even yeah. like has a bow that he uses. Yeah, yeah. So that's also just interesting. Quick side note on that scene: that warg was way too cute. I thought it was adorable. Like it was evil looking and had fangs, but it's just like it just looks like a pug. It looks like a warg pug, and I didn't want it to get hurt, even though it's, you know, eating elves. It's just like, it's got the little fangs sticking up, but behind that, it's just got a little squished-in snoot, and he just he just looks so happy to be there. And, yeah, it's just like, why didn't they make the warg so cute? <laughs> um, yeah, I, uh, I... I didn't see it the same way. Yeah, but. I mean, it, it it was still pretty vicious, but it's just like, you could have made it look a whole lot more evil than it did. It just... Yeah, I got you. It, it was kind of... It was... It was a... Like, I would get, like, a little, like, plushy warg to just, like, oh, yeah. have as a decoration, because it was kind of... It was fun. Um, I guess something else I'm thinking about with Gladriel is... I mean... In this episode, she acts... I mean, I think they're probably intentionally doing this, but she's... Towards, like, the middle of it, she actually starts to, like, kind of warm up to things and isn't as angry. Yeah, It yeah. seems. And maybe that's because she, like, sees, like, oh, look at what the elves' work was here at Normanor, and she's kind of appreciating yeah. that. Yeah. I'm curious to see what their, their character arc with Galadriel is, because the character arc with Galadriel ends... Like, you can't really have her have a full character arc because her full character arc when she becomes complete 
as a character or proves that she's become complete as a character is in the Fellowship of the Ring when she's offered the ring by Frodo and she turns it down. She steps away from power. Um, because her whole, like, her whole story is that she's very, like, she is a little bit arrogant and she is, like, a little bit power hungry in the books, um, in the Silmarillion. And I think that's coming through here where she's this very fierce warrior elf woman who demands respect. Um, and she can't, you can't really have her fully go through that because her character, I mean, you could, but it it would kind of lessen, it would make less sense because her character arc from the Silmarillion to the Lord of the Rings is this one of coming to terms with the fact that she is not going to be the one to solve everything and the one to be the most powerful all the time. So they've probably done a pretty good job. So, that's so you know, I think seems. they've gotten her characterization very well. Also, fun fact about Galadriel. Um, again, I'll have to go back and double check this, but I am fairly certain that she was written for the Lord of the Rings. Her character first appears in the Lord of the Rings and Tolkien liked her character so much that he went back and added her into the Silmarillion story. Interesting. Which, if that's true, which I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure it's true, I need to remember to double check that for next episode. But uh, if that's true, then she really has across the Legendarium. She has the most complete story arc because it was written with the ending in mind. And then you can he went back and wrote all these little details that sort of accentuate that. So like uh, Theonor asking for a single hair off her head and she says no. And then Gimli being like, can I have a hair off your head? And she gives him three, which is both a sign of her humility and also kind of hilariously a middle finger to Feanor. Um <laughs> But uh, yeah, so... Yeah, so Galadriel, I think they're getting her character right in that at this point, she has not settled down. Um, She's still kind of the fiery elf warrior that she was in the Silmarillion, and she was at this point. She doesn't really begin to settle down until she marries, oh, what's his name? Celeborn? Um, Her husband? Yeah. Yeah. And they move into Lothlorien and settle down and she becomes more stationary. So, yeah, I think that they're doing her character very well. Yeah, so far, the named characters, I think, like, the pre-existing characters from the stories have been characterized very well. Um, Elrond makes sense to me as a younger Elrond, although... Again, it's kind of in this weird spot with elves where it's just like, well, they're immortal. So it's not like you can have, you know, the same ratio of like age time that a human would have. So it's not like the first, you know, 20% of their life, they're young and reckless and then they sort of mellow out. And then at the end of these like old wise things, like with the elves, it's just like you have a childhood right at the beginning and then you're sort of young and in the epitome of health 
for the entire life, your entire life, but you also get like the wisdom of the ages. So I think I think that comes more with like particular events. So like after um the battle for the ring that presumably will be what ends the series. I think that'd be cool. Um yeah, I the thing about that is that and that's the problem with making a prequel story like this particularly is that um or re- like really any adaptation, but it's it's so open-ended because like once you have that moment, what do you do next? Like, there's still more story to tell, but it will feel very unnecessary to the story that they're trying to tell, I guess. I don't know. Maybe I mean, they they could pull it off. Um, but, like, most of the characters... Like, this isn't... The, You'll have some elves that'll be around for the whole series, however long the series goes, but you can't really have the human characters sticking around the entire time because they die, and this story takes place over an extended period of time. So once you do the battle for the ring, it's like, what do you do after that's done? Um, so I think they'll end it at the 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 battle for the ring. But I think so far, yeah, so I was going to say, so with Elrond... I think they're kind of getting his his sort of sense of specialness that he would have about him at this time because like he is the last of that family of elves and men at this point that's still around that embodies that because I mean his just like technically the queen we met is like Elrond's like great 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 niece so, like, he's not the last member of the family, but he's the last one that sort of embodies that connection between men and elves, which puts him in a yeah. an interesting place. Now, something else with that, so with Arwen, Elrond's daughter, Yeah. and I think I kind of picked this up from reading in the books as well, that she kind of has the ability to say, oh, yes. like, I yes, want to yes. be, be she a also man, has, like, be mortal, basically. She has that. That's how. That's the whole reason that Aragorn and Arwen's story works, is because, um, and that's why it's so emotional for Elrond when he, when she chooses to put her lot in with men, is because, going back to the whole death thing, it's not just that, oh, you're choosing to be married to this guy, it's that even if Elrond dies, men and elves are separated in the afterlife. So when Arwen dies, Elrond is not going to see her again until like the end of time when everybody gets to come all back together. There's some writings that he wrote that were going to be in the Silmarillion and then they weren't and they were never published, but he spells out like what happens at the end of the world. Um, so anyways, but until that happens... Um, that's why it's such a big deal for Elrond that Arwen go back to the Undying Lands rather than stay with Aragorn is because in her choosing that, ch- making that choice to stay with Aragorn, um, that is her, that like, they will know, like, that's it for them. Yeah. When she dies, he will never get to see his daughter again. Um, cause like, it's kind of implied that elves can come back from the dead. Um, there's, there's a character 
named Glorfindel, who I hope we get to see in this show. Now that I think about it, I really hope we get to see Glorfindel. And he's Glorfindel is the one who, he, instead of Arwen in the movies yeah, taking of, Frodo, he yes, at least he gives Frodo his horse. Or yeah, whatever, yeah, yeah. Right? So he, so the the part that Arwen plays in the movies rescuing Frodo from the Ring Raves, that's Glorfindel in the books. There's another elf named Glorfindel who's the one that kills a Balrog yeah. in the flight from Gondolin. So, Tolkien used this name twice. And at some point he realized, oh, I've used this name twice. This is the only elf name that is used twice. And he went back and forth on... Is it the same character? Is it not the same character? Because it's it's kind of implied with elves that when they die, their souls go back to the halls of Mandos in the Undying Lands. But then because of the way the Undying Lands kind of connect to Middle-earth, but don't connect to Middle-earth, but it, the elves can travel back and forth, it basically, with an elf, hypothetically speaking, when you die, you can just hop back on a ship and sail back to Middle-earth all hunky-dory like nothing has changed interesting yeah um so yeah so glorfindel who's there in the at some point again it's been so long since i've read all this and i don't have any sources in front of me so this could all be completely made up but i'm pretty sure i've read this somewhere that at some point he kind of implied that glorfindel came back to middle earth with the astari maybe again that Part might be conjecture on my part, or it might be something I read somewhere. I'm not entirely I sure. I got you. <laughs> um, but it, it, yeah, at one point, Tolkien sort of implied that he came back. So hypothetically, he could come back and we could get Glorfindel on the show, which would be pretty cool. How did we even get on this topic? Oh, Arwen and Elrond. So right. that's, yeah, that's why it's important to Elrond because he won't see Arwen. She can't come back because when she dies, she goes, her soul will go to the the halls yeah. of men um, to be with Aragorn. So yes, Arwen does have that choice. And I think it's kind of implied that it's because like any of the elves, because they're immortal. Like obviously if you choose men, like it wouldn't really work for the story for like, yeah, my kid, I want to die, but my kids are just going to go on forever. But like on the elven side, they still have the choice on that bloodline. Hmm. So, yeah, I got gotcha. you. So when you were talking about how like the men, how men, um, kind of are able to like to choose their fate, yeah. you're saying compared to the elves, and yet elves, it seems they can be some of them at least. Well, the ones can be the ones of that particular bloodline. So Arwen, Elrond, Elros, Elendil, um, Elendil, Erendil. All these names sound the same, and I feel bad for not knowing the difference. But I think it's Aaron. Elendil Elend- is, is. He's the, okay. He's the one on the show. So it's Erendur, who was Elrond and Elros's father. Okay. Um, and his father was Tor, and his mother was the um, the prince. I cannot remember her name, but the princess of Gondolin. And Tor is Hur's son, and Hur and Hurin were brothers, and Turin was Hurin's son. So. Tour, because he married an elf, gets the choice. Well, because he he's the only human to go to the Undying Lands, I believe. Hmm. So, 
Tours there. Arinder feels more closely related to the to men. Like he feels more mannish than elvish. But the elf that he marries, he doesn't want her to have to suffer his death. So he chooses to live as an elf. Elrond chooses to live as an elf. Elras chooses to live as a man and is the first king of Numenor. Arwen chooses to throw her fate in with men because of Aragorn. Yeah, so the, the three pairings of men and elves are Tour and his wife, Aragorn and Arwen, and Baron and Luthien. Right. Um, and Baron and Luthien are somehow connected to this whole family tree as well. Right. Yeah, so it's only yeah. those it's only those ones that get to yeah. and Luthien also gets to choose, but she cho- she chooses to die a mortal death because like Baron dies and then she gets him resurrected at the cost of her getting to live forever. So they they literally just go off and live in the woods for the rest of the Silmarillion until something happens and they die. But yeah, so elves are immortal. Men they are not tied to so like in the um in the Silmarillion the Valar basically know what the elves are gonna be like. Um and they find the elves when they first awake and bring some of them to Valinor. Men, they don't like the awakening of the first men is never mentioned. They just show up one day. Um and men are sort of implied to be special to Iluvatar and are disconnected from the world in the sense that like their fate was not foretold in the music of the Einar um, and had no, no one other than Iluvatar had a hand in creating them. So that's why they have a whole, that's why they have like their, they can choose their own fate basically. Uh, I think it's still, still cool. And like some people probably don't even know the connection yeah. With all of that, who are watching the show, um, I know I don't, I don't like know all the details. Yeah. But again, it's so been cool. a long time. Do your own research, kids. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's tough to know at this point, but like third episode in, it's 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 it's, a, it's pretty good. It's a pretty good show. I'd say. I'm I mean, getting invested. It's. I think yeah. I mean, if nothing else, it's you know at least. Decent as far as fantasy is concerned, but I think they're hitting it pretty good on the yeah. nail for, you know, for at least pretty close to Tolkien lore. You know, there's yeah. probably people who are pretty picky about yeah, it. And what I, it, I know there are, there are going to be people out there that are like, no, they didn't get it right, and it's not in the spirit of Tolkien or whatever. But I, as a person that is fairly invested in the lore, I think that it's. I think it's doing a pretty good job and they they're staying away from super well established areas. So like they're going to the Southlands that's Mordor but before it was Mordor. And um we're going to Numenor which is described but isn't described in great detail. Um yeah. so I think they're mixing enough they're mixing enough kind of artistic new, license. Art, yeah, new stuff that they can do what they want with. Um, with the things the fans are looking for, that I think it's mm-hmm. I think it's pretty good. Yeah, right now, definitely. Two thumbs and up. Yeah, I think like the big fan base 
that Amazon's going to get with Rings of Power. It's going to be like a middle, I think a middle of ground yeah. fan base. Because people who are, you know, intense, you know, nerds are probably going to find a lot of problems with it. I mean, I've, I th- I've seen on things online about it, but I mean... I think they're still going to get those people to watch just because they're going to get rage views. <laughs> Um, but again, like I would consider myself a fairly in-depth, yeah. hardcore Tolkien nerd, and I and I also tend to try to be more forgiving of a lot of things mm-hmm. that I watch. But I I have not found any major issues with it. I think some people might have an issue with. I don't think that Ellen Dill's daughter is in. I think we covered this already. That I think mm-hmm. she might be somewhere mentioned, but I don't think. She's a character from the from the Silmarillion or anything, and if she is, she's not very fleshed out. Yeah. So if she is an original character, I think people might get a little bit annoyed with her. But then it, again, I don't like. She seems like an interesting character so far, and it lets them do something with that particular family without, you know, treading too much on anybody's toes. So yeah, I I think. I think it's fine. I I like it so far. Mm-hmm. I'm enjoying it. No, it's. No, I am too, definitely. And after all the few years of just the just you know wondering if it's even going to be that good and all, you know, I definitely have definitely come to a point where it's like completely opposite side of what I thought it was going to be, almost yeah, basically. Yeah, yeah. So, I've been but. I've been fairly. I don't want to say necessarily like super impressed by it, but it has surpassed my expectations, I guess. Um, again, I was not, I never, I didn't have high expectations. And in the first episode, it was like, it met my expectations. Yeah. And I think that it has sort of, so far, it has sort of justified its own existence, mm-hmm. I guess, would be the, uh, one way of putting it. So, yeah. Yeah. That's cool. All right. Well, yeah, thanks for listening, everyone. And, uh, be ready for episode four in the okay. next week. Thanks, Matt. Yeah, thanks. Yep. Thanks for visiting the White City. Before you leave, please subscribe to our podcast and check us out at thewhitecitypodcast.com. Consider supporting my movement on Facebook, keeping the rings of power pure.